Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be in the same passage we looked at together last week. Uh, a passage where our, our author, this letter, goes back into the bowels of the Old Testament to pull out a passage known as the New Covenant and to help us see why it's still such incredibly good news today. As you're, as you're turning there, let me, I want to add something to the announcement about the book study that I forgot to add earlier. You know, we've got this book study starting on Thursday. Uh, we're reading this book by George Guthrie called Read the Bible for Life. I wanted to remind you guys that there are actually copies of that book available for sale today. Uh, it'd be great if you want to go ahead and maybe read the preface, the introduction, get, get, get a sense of the way the book works. There are maybe 15 copies over there. Uh, they're 10 bucks a piece. Uh, if you didn't bring a way to pay, just take them. We'll settle up later. Uh, there's a, there should be a basket over there that you can, you can drop that in if you, if you want to, but we would rather you have it than pay for it. So uh, before you leave, if you're planning to participate in the study, we'd love for you to go ahead and grab a copy. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 13 this morning. Last week, we talked about each of the promises that are made to us in this beautiful covenant. This week, we want to talk more intently about how those promises change our lives. There is not one person sitting in here this morning that doesn't want to change. I know that that's true. Uh, and that, that holds true whether you're committed to following Christ or whether you're not. Maybe whether you're still on the fence about that or still... Still, still curious, still questioning. And wherever you are this morning, I know that you want to change. There are things about ourselves that we just don't like, whether we admit that or not. Sometimes we, we resonate with this famous passage in, the, in Paul's letter to Romans, chapter 7 of that passage where Paul's, Paul's like expressing this angst that he has about how he knows what he should do and he really does want to do it sometimes, but he just can't. And he keeps on doing the things that he doesn't want to do and he, he can't do the things that he does want to do. He's just caught in this cycle of disappointment and failure. His life just isn't changing in the way that he wanted it to. I feel like that. I'm sure that you do too. I don't know why. I don't know what it is in you. That, that you especially want to change, but I know that, that all of you have that. Identify it. If you can think of it now, I think this message is going to encourage you even better. I think our instinct is to seek change by swapping out one set of behaviors for another one. The radical message of Christianity is that change comes through a set of promises. Uh, that, that is something that I think we are implicitly suspicious of. I think when we think of promises, we think, that, we think of empty promises. We think of campaign promises. A promise is what you have in the absence of real change. In the absence of the ability to do anything about a situation, you make promises about it. That maybe is, is where our minds naturally go. But the radical message of Christianity is that the change we want to see happen actually comes about through the power of a set of promises known as a covenant, that in those promises is life. The thing about this passage is that it was, it was written to Israel and has it, you know, thousands of years ago and has been preserved for us because ultimately Israel then was exactly where we are now. They were used to failing. 
In what was called the Old Covenant, Israel got these incredible promises that God was going to give them everything that they needed. He was going to give them land. He was going to be their God in a unique way, provide for everything that they needed, all of the, the food. He talked about land flowing with milk and honey, just this image of, of plenty, of having everything that you needed. That's what Israel was promised. They were also given a set of regulations. This is what it will look like for you to live like you believe these promises are true. And every time they failed. We fail too, don't we? It seems like every time we believe the lie that if we could just get to X place, then we'd be good, right? The grass is always greener. There's always some carrot on some stick that's just out of reach. All of us, I think, believe that, experience that. For Israel, who knows what it was. The security that a king like their neighbors would provide. You know, better land, more land. For us, it's, what, finishing graduate school? Maybe getting published? Maybe getting that grant you want so badly? Getting a job that you feel you need? Getting a house? Getting the kids to, you know, X number of years so that then everything will be easy, right? If we could just get past this stage in their development. If we could just get married. These are the things that stress us, that suck our time and our energy away. They're, they're ultimately, often, false gods. That's what they are. We serve them, and they don't deliver for us. Like Israel, if our right to share in God's promises to us depends on our faithfulness to Him, then we are hopeless. Because like Israel, our history is one of failure over and over and over again. But the gist of the new covenant that we're unpacking today and what makes the new covenant different from the old covenant is that in the old covenant, the promises were simply made and they were contingent on a set of behaviors. The promises were made and offered based on regulations that were outside of the people, standards that the people needed to meet. In the new covenant, God promises not just to give us everything that we need, but to change who we are. This is a passage that speaks of a covenant in which God promises not to let our idolatry have the last word. What it promises us is not that God's going to look the other way, not that God is going to change his standards, not that he's going to give up on us, but that he's going to change us. This covenant is all about how God is going to change us to make us worthy of the only relationship that can satisfy. How he's going to change us to make us able to give ourselves away to other people rather than using other people, rather than fearing other people. That's the promise of change that comes to us in this covenant. Like I said before, last week we took each promise one by one, tried to get a better sense of what they meant. This week we want to come back over the same ground, but be even more practical this time. And try to understand how it is that this promise of change actually changes us. This is the gospel communicated to Israel, communicated to us this morning. And now let's read it together. If you found Hebrews chapter 8, would you please stand with me? We're going to read verses 6 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. As it is. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. You can be seated. Here's how I want to go, come at this this morning. I want to I look at these promises and apply them to this idea of change. You can see from the first few verses, even of the quotation, the first couple of verses, that the problem with the old covenant was that his people weren't faithful to it. So if, they were, if, if the new covenant was going to improve on the old one, it had to make them faithful to it. That's verse 9. We want to look at this covenant and try to understand what it is that he did in this new covenant to make us able to be faithful to it. How is it that he promises to change us? So I'm going to come at it through in four steps. I think in this covenant, we, have, we see the hope for change, the hope held out to us that we, that we actually can change, that we will if we trust in him. We see the method of change, how change happens, what it looks like. We see the source of change, where the power to change us by this method God has established actually comes from. And then we see the results of change what it looks like after God has begun to do his work in us, how especially that changes the way we relate to each other. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's start with the hope for change. God's promise means that change, if not immediate, is inevitable for us. Taking taking the promises on the whole, everything that we just read, all of them as a package deal, what we get from that is that there is a wonderfully encouraging point that God has responded to our disobedience, to the fact that his people were stuck in a cycle of rebellion and unbelief, not by abandoning them, but by giving a covenant that promises to change them at their core, not to sweeten the incentive, not to try to, you know, to beef up the carrot that's at the end of the stick, but to actually change them, to change what they want, to change their, their hearts. It doesn't promise that he's going to give us an opportunity to change, not that he'll reward us for change. It promises that he will change us. If you don't get anything else from this morning, get this. God will change you if you trust in him. I think all of us need to hear this. I think we need to hear it because we all have destructive patterns in our lives that seem unshakable to us. And I know there are some patterns that are worse than others, and 
and there there's probably an incredible range even in a room of people this size of where we struggle where our where our destructive patterns are but i know all of us have them and i know that for many here there's nothing in your past to give you any hope that something new is going to work you know you've tried a lot of different things to try to master whatever it is that that you can't seem to shake and and you have failed you have experienced disappointment and disillusionment probably a lot of different times and that creates a certain kind of struggle a struggle to keep going one example of this i mean we, we could go into so many different directions but one example of of why and how it can be so hard to change i think a great one is is pornography addiction i, I came across a uh, an article recently that was breaking down the the brain chemistry behind an addiction like an addiction to pornography that it, there's this there's this neurotransmitter known as dopamine. Uh, there's probably people sitting out here who know a lot more about dopamine than I do, so just you know, be easy on me if I get this wrong. But it's this neurotransmitter that sends messages inside your brain that, that is particularly alert to, to pleasure and desire. And that as, that as that message, that dopamine, gets sent from one cell to the other over and over again, it gets easier and easier to, to send those messages that, that at the beginning... Maybe it's 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 hard to get over the hump, but once you start to get it, once you start to to send those messages in your brain, the stronger the connection becomes, and the easier it becomes to communicate on that path. Here's the analogy that the that the article gave. It's like trying to walk through a, a field of very high grass, and you're trying to, to to create a pathway in that grass. But and at first, because it's tall, you struggle through it. But over time, the more you walk through it, it beats down that grass and it becomes a nice and smooth pathway. And now, not only is it not difficult for you to, to walk that path, that's now become the easier path. Here's the way that the article put it. Someone who doesn't watch porn or is not yet addicted has, has yet to develop sensitized, weed-whacked pathways. But the porn neuropathways of someone whose brain is addicted are weed-whacked and trampled down so that they become the path of least resistance. Porn becomes the path of least resistance in the brain, and the easier the path, the more likely we are to take it, even when we don't want to. Now, maybe that one is not your thing, but, the, but there is a parallel between what that kind of addiction is like and what all of our patterns of behavior are like. That, that the more we give into them, the more hold they have upon us. So that it's just easier to do it than not to do it. And we get stuck, like Paul in Romans 7 saying, I do the things I don't want to do. I just can't do the things that I want to do. It, 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 it is almost impossible to even imagine our lives without the struggles that we have at that point. And I'm sure there are people sitting here this morning who are like me, and who are right there. I don't know what it is for you. It may be crippling anxiety. It may be recurring depression. It may be a hard marriage. Maybe you just can't imagine your life without this struggle. Maybe you're telling yourself this morning that you can't change. If you don't get any other practical nugget from this talk of God's new covenant with us, then you need to get this one. Do not... Believe the lie that you can't change. What you're sensing in your, in your, in your mind when, you, when you're tempted to go down that road, when you're tempted to give up, that is a lie that you're being told by one who hates your soul and wants to bring it down. And it is not true. The promise of the covenant is that not only can you change, 
if you commit yourself to Jesus, you will change. I came across an analogy, I think, that really helps to unlock this. And I'm, I'm going to tweak it a little bit for our purposes. Uh, my friend uh, Amy Jacobs, many of you know her, she completed this remarkable renovation of a beautiful old home a couple years back. It's, it's amazing. But before she got to that house, it was a wreck. I didn't see it with my own eyes. She described it. It looked okay from the outside. You could tell that it had amazing character. And there, you know, there was chinks in the armor on the outside, but it was, it was okay. But in the inside, I mean, it was just a total mess. I mean, the floors were rotted out, a lot of water damage. It was a pretty much complete overhaul. I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm almost certain that many people probably looked at this house before Amy did. Others were on the market, in the market for a house, maybe even for a fixer-upper. And they looked at this one and considered buying it, and they walked out because they thought this was too much for them. They couldn't see what it could become. They maybe just couldn't visualize the change. But Amy did. She walked in, and to some extent, she saw the end from the beginning. She saw the potential that it had. She saw some things she could do here and there. She could see the end. I think the, the, the beauty of this covenant to us is that God can see us from beginning to end. So when we, walk, when we look at our lives, especially the inside parts that people can't see, maybe we were holding it together okay on the outside, you know. But the inside parts that people can't see, when we, when we look at those, a lot of times I think we're tempted to, to think that the, we just can't change. I mean, that house is, is just gone. We need to be just destroyed, and we want to give up. But God, God didn't, didn't come to us in that way. God looked at us, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change their minds, and I'm going to change their hearts. I'm going to write my law there so that they will love it, so that they will no longer find it to be a yoke that they can't carry, but they will find it to be a source of life and beauty and joy. I'm going to satisfy them with myself, and that will change them. God sees the end from the beginning, and in this covenant, he promises he is going to take us there. It's what Paul says in Philippians, right? That the God who began the good work in you, he's going to carry the good work to completion. He's going to finish it, and even if you can't see that, the promise is held out to here, here in this new covenant covenant to you, asking only that you believe it, that you believe God can do what you can't see. God loves us ultimately. Ultimately, the promise in this covenant is that God loves us too much to leave us where we are. I was reading this really great book with some friends earlier this week, and and one of the chapters in this book, uh, it's it's a book by a great Christian counselor named David Pallison, and one of the chapters in the book challenges our use of language like unconditional love for God's love for us. He, he's really careful to say, I know what we usually mean by it, and, and it's true. God doesn't expect us to clean up our act before he comes to us, before he saves us. He doesn't hold us to certain standards that if we fail them, he, he, um, he is going to just disown us as his children. Those things are true. But there's a lot better way to say those things, is his argument, that, that actually what we often think what, what, our, what our brains, where our brains go in our culture when we hear words like unconditional love is we go to another counseling concept called unconditional positive regard. That, that when, we, when we relate to other people, we need, to, we need to accept them where they are, as they are. 
that if we, if we even think of changing them, then we're not being faithful to them. We're not truly loving them. That love is affirmation. But for people like us who want to change and can't do it, who have experienced what it is to fail, I can't imagine anything more depressing than unconditional positive regard. What I want is somebody who has the power to love me and make me better because of his love for me. I want unconditional love. I don't want him to have to, I don't want to have to clean up my act before I can win God's favor. And that is promised to me in the scriptures. But what else is promised is that God's love is not really unconditional. His love is, his love comes to us as an agent of change. He loves us so much that he is not willing to let us stay where we are. And that is a love that has power. There's no power in unconditional positive regard. And it is depressing to think of it as those who have real problems. But God loves us too much to leave us there. His love ultimately is too intense to leave us where we are. Just as Lindsay and I love Walter with too intense a love, to let, him, to let his culinary taste stay where they are. You know, it's not that our love for him, it's not that our love for him is conditioned on him changing his tastes. Like we won't love him unless he starts eating good food. But we love him too much to let him keep the diet that in his own, by his own will, he would keep. He needs more than goldfish and fruit snacks. Our love for him is too much to settle for unconditional positive regard. Ours is a love that wants to see him grow. And that is the kind of love that motivates God's covenant to us. So here's promise number one. Do not leave here without a grasp on this truth. You may think that you're stuck and that you're past changing, but the truth of God's covenant that comes to you as a promise directly from your father and executed by your brother Jesus is this. God loves you too much to leave you where you are, and you will change. You will it may not be immediate, and it may not be easy, and it may not come quickly. It may take your entire life, but God will change you if you trust him. So how's he going to do it? What is the method of change? That's the next thing I think we can get out of this. So if, 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 if the hope for change is a sort of bird's eye view on the whole covenant, if that's the, the bottom line for God's promise in his new covenant, then the first section, the first promise in this covenant gives us a much clearer sense on how it works for people to change. So God's going to do it. How's he going to do it? This covenant gives us a clear sense of direction. And it's actually really different from what we'd naturally expect. I was reading a book this week uh, by, by two other Christian counselors, one uh, named uh, Timothy Lane and one named Paul Tripp. The book is called How to Change or How People Change or something like that. And one of the chapters I thought was really insightful, they broke down the different categories that we normally associate with change. When we think about what is it going to take to change, we normally go to a certain number of things, a certain progression. You have to change one of these things. And the two most dominant ones, uh, the the ones that I think all of us tend to default to, are you either got to change your circumstances or you got to change your behavior. If you want to change your life, get a new set of circumstances or change your behavior. I'm not going to claim that those things don't matter, that you, you, you may need to change your circumstances. You may need to change your behavior. In fact, God's covenant with you promises he is going to change your behavior. He cares about what we do. But that's not how change fundamentally happens, according to this promise. Let me, let me get into this a little bit more. So, so we, we think that we've got to change our circumstances. Sometimes if we, sometimes if we think, 
if I could just get to X number, I'm, I'm revealing too much about myself here, but if I could just get to X number of dollars in my bank account, then I could sleep easy at night, right? Then it would be enough. I wouldn't have to worry about money. If I could just have any house, just give me any kind of house, then I won't care anymore about where I live. Maybe for you it's, if I could just get married, then I won't struggle with loneliness or lust anymore. If I could just change my circumstances, then I could change. Unfortunately, that's a lie. Circumstances do matter, but we should know by now that that's not that 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 is not true in the way that we think it is. Circumstances really just provide a context for expressing what's already in us, for expressing the condition of our hearts at that time. They just provide an opportunity. They're like a, a blog for just getting our inner self out there. Perhaps even more, we're tempted to think if we could change our behavior, if we could change our identity, what we don't like about ourselves, so we can we can we can change those things by just adjusting behavior, just by hunkering down, sort of self-will, better discipline. And that one's especially tempting, partly because we love to do things ourselves. We love the credit that we get from self-reliance, but also because there's a lot of truth in it. That's a kind of plausible thing. The scripture is full of calls to change our behavior. Even this covenant, as I mentioned a minute ago, has God promising that he is going to change our behavior. So behavior really does matter. But the problem is that when we think this method for producing change has to focus on new ways of acting, on a new series of steps to follow, thinking that that, that kind of change is going to be permanent or lasting, that there's any, any kind of power to it. I think, I think that tendency in us to rest so much on behavior belies the truth about where behavior comes from, as if behavior just stands alone or exists in some sort of vacuum. What it fails to account for, I think, is, the, is, is motives. Failing to account for motives leaves us subject to unnamed or unnoticed motives, and those things leave change incomplete. They leave change simply external and temporary. They, they are driven, ultimately, mostly, by fear or pride, not by anything that's lasting. Uh, there's this great essay by Tim Keller, um, I know many of you have probably read on, on how the gospel changes us. And, um, and, and one of the insightful points in the essay is, is that oftentimes, especially when we're dealing with children and we want to change behavior, nobody really goes straight after the behavior. Implicitly, we all go after some sort of motive behind the behavior. But the ones that we most naturally go to are fear or pride. We say, you really, if you continue behaving like this, then this bad thing is going to happen to you. Um, I mean, we, you can even see that in, in the way that we reason with ourselves. Stop doing this, this thing. We want to change this pattern because we know it could destroy us. Or we appeal to, to pride. You're a better kid than that. You're not like those other boys who do those things. You're better than that. Is that who you want to be like? Here's the way Keller puts it. I'm going to quote from his essay. Think of all the ways you can say no to ungodliness. You can say, no, because I'll look bad. You can say, no, I'll be excluded from the social circles I want to belong to. You can say, no, because then God will not give me health and wealth and happiness. 
You can say no because God will send me to hell. You can say no because I'll hate myself in the morning and disappoint myself and have low self-esteem. But virtually all of these motives are really just motives of fear and pride. The very things that also lead to sin. Do you get that? You're appealing for behavior change to the very things that led you into the cycle of behavior that you want to get out of. You're just using, this is, I'm continuing to quote here, you're just using sinful, self-centered impulses of the heart to keep you compliant to the external rules without really changing the heart itself. Also, you're not really doing anything out of love for God. You're using God to get things, self-esteem, prosperity, excuse me, prosperity, social approval. So your deepest joys and hopes rest in other things besides God. This kind of obedience does not issue from a changed heart at all. And so what it leads to is a merely temporary and external and fruitless sort of change. The amazing thing about this covenant to me is that as old as it is, as as long as it's been around, as much as separates its culture from ours, it is so penetrating in its insight into human psychology, into the human heart. God knows and promises in this covenant that to really change us, what he's going to have to do is change our hearts. He's going to have to change what we want. He's going to have to replace the affections that are driving us to all of these unsatisfying places with an affection for him. Do not mishear me at this point. I am not claiming that discipline and attention to behavior aren't important. By all means, go out and get yourself an accountability partner if you don't have one. Without one, you are living in a kind of darkness that sin thrives in. By all means, with your accountability partner, establish some steps that you can take to see change and growth. By all means, get rid of circumstances that might be bringing you down and trapping you in these cycles of behavior. So if your computer is causing you to stumble, get rid of your computer. If Amazon is causing you to stumble into covetousness and discontent, don't go to Amazon anymore. If If you can identify something in your life that constantly causes you to fall, then Jesus' words about plucking out the eye and cutting off the arm are meant for you. Do it. But when you do those things, please don't miss this. When you do those things, when you take those steps, do not believe the lie that if you can faithfully complete these steps, then you will change in any kind of lasting or meaningful way. Because the only thing that is really going to change you is a new love for God. If that's the method for change, that that we need a swap of hearts, and that's where true and lasting change comes from, then then the next question that we have to answer is where do we get this love that's going to drive us to behave in new ways? How can we get that? And I think God's covenant with us answers it plainly in the next two promises. So verses 11 and 12, the first promise is that God's going to put his laws in our minds and write them on our hearts if he's going to swap out who we are on the inside. Then the covenant doesn't make this connection explicitly, but I think it's there. Then then here's how he's going to do it in verses 11 and 12. 
They will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. You want a new heart? It's going to come from knowing him. And how are you going to get to know him? How are you going to have a relationship with him? That's verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Those two promises put together explain to us the source or the fuel for the heart change that is the only source for real change. We've been talking about these ideas uh, for, for weeks now in our study of Hebrews. The idea that this relationship with God is the one we were meant for. It's the one we were created to have. It's the only one in which we can have true peace. And that what keeps us from it is a sin problem that's too big for us to solve. What we see in these verses is that God is giving us that thing by solving the sin problem that was too big for us. If we think about, I think one of, the, one of the ways the Bible consistently thinks about the relationship between God and his people is through the analogy to marriage. It's a great metaphor for it. And in marriage where there's infidelity, where there's been cheating, there is no recovery for that relationship that doesn't acknowledge that cheating, address it, find some sort of forgiveness for it, some resolve to forget it and to move on. And if that is to happen, then the one who has been cheated the one who has been unfaithful, who has been the recipient of the unfaithfulness, that's the one who's got to eat the cost of making that relationship possible. They've got to resolve that they are just not going to hold it over the heads of the unfaithful partner. They've got to forget and remember their sins no more. And the beautiful promise of the gospel, the promise of this covenant to us, is that that is precisely what God has done for us. That he has made it possible for us to have a full and satisfying relationship with him because he has taken on himself the cost for the infidelity we brought into that relationship. That he has resolved through Jesus to forgive our sins and remember them no more. That's the essence of the gospel. And that, in the human psychology of the New Testament, is the source, that truth that we have been forgiven and that we now have God himself. That's the only source for any kind of lasting change. I want to point you to just one example of this, of the New Testament playing this out. I think, again, I think it's implied in the New Covenant. He doesn't, he doesn't really spell it out really clearly. He just says, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I'm going to do. But if we trace out the promises and how they relate to each other, I think what we're getting is something like the picture that Paul paints for us in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read for you Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. This, I believe, is the result of God's covenant. For in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Did you get that? You have been filled in him. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There are several references in this, in this little short passage to things that just seem really abstract and difficult to latch hold to. And that holds true for me just as much as it does for you, I promise. 
what does it mean to be filled in Jesus? What does it mean to have received a circumcision made without hands? What does it mean to be joined to him in baptism and raised to new life through the same power that brought him back from the dead? I don't know what that means. I don't know how that works. I don't know what fullness of Christ dwelling in me actually means. But here's where we've got to resist our temptation to think that we've got to understand something for it to actually work. I think my frustration, maybe yours too, with coming across language like the fullness of Christ or knowing God, knowing God that you can't see and you can't actually speak to Him. and What does that look like? How does that relationship change us as it's promised here? I think my frustration with the abstractness of it shows my reigning mindset, which is that if, if I can't, I don't, I don't believe anything can work that I can't be in control of. Give me a set of steps that I can work through. Give me a syllabus for how to make this thing happen. And then I can check them off my list one by one. If, if fullness of God dwelling in me is not something I can fully understand, then it seems hard for me to imagine that it could actually change me in the way that it's promised here. But the promises of the covenant is that this relationship that is mysterious to us, that, that the, the terms of which are, are almost beyond our ability to comprehend, is a real thing that happens to you when you trust in him that you don't have to understand for his fullness to be in you and changing you over time. Remember, we, we, we talked at the very beginning about needing to claim the promise that, that change is inevitable, that God will change us. That's not up for debate. This is how he does it. He changes our heart, but he does that by filling us with himself, by somehow putting Jesus in us. How does that work? I don't know. But you know what? I, don't, I also don't really understand much about my own body. I don't understand the process of decay and replacement of human cells. I don't understand what causes my hair to fall out. I don't understand why meat gives me more energy than white bread. But these things, these things are true whether I understand them or not. And I don't have to understand them for those things to have a dramatic impact on my life. And the claim of this text is that this relationship that we're promised is ours in Jesus, even if we don't really fully understand it. That he is in us, and that means he will change us, and we don't have to understand for it to work. It causes it calls for us to trust him even if we can't fully control him. Even if the terms by which he changes us aren't terms that we can set or complete. It calls us to trust him because that's what pleases him. Never in, in the Old or New Testament do we ever get a picture of people becoming more holy other than when they trust in God. Because ultimately, he wants our hearts. He doesn't want our behaviors. He wants our hearts. So let me ask you this really practical question. Does your prayer life for yourself or for others reflect this perspective on change? Do you often ask God to give you himself along with your daily bread. When you pray for that spouse that you so badly want to see changed, that that is so out of your control, when you pray for your spouse, do you pray this for them? That God will change them because he will satisfy them perfectly and completely with himself? Give them a love for the gospel, for the way that they have been loved in Jesus, that drives out all competing affections? Is that how you pray for yourself and for others? That's precisely how Paul prayed. 
If you look at each of Paul's prayers in his letters, you'll see the same pattern over and over. He's praying that God would show himself to them, that, that, that his friends would know God, would know the power of his resurrection, that they would have their eyes open to see what is the hope of their calling and that they'd be changed by it. That's exactly how Paul prayed. And if we really believe change works like the new covenant predicts it will work, like the covenant promises it will work, then we're going to pray. We're going to pray concretely and specifically that God would satisfy us with himself. Now, I'm out of time and I have one more point that I'm going to have to leave off for today, except to say this. Sometimes, uh, maybe you felt this or heard this, this sort of perspective on change that I've been presenting, this, this one that's really centered on relationship with God, a personal and individual uh, relationship with God that leads to personal and individual change, sometimes it's easy to think that maybe it doesn't have social implications as if Christianity is all about you and your personal walk with, with God. That is not at all the meaning of this covenant or anything else about biblical morality. The beauty of, of Christian gospel-centered ethics is that to be changed by God in the way this covenant promises is to change how you relate to other people. Because when you're secure in the way that he has tied, God has tied you to himself by his covenant, then you no longer see people as threats to be neutralized or as assets to be manipulated and turned to your own good. You're free to not respond to them in anger, to not remember their sins against you, to not give up on them when they disappoint you, because that is not how God treats you. And if you are in this covenant, you are living this covenant, and that is the point. These promises of God change everything. Let's pray now that they will change us. Father, We have no hope that is not tied to you being true to your word. The scriptures tell us that you can't lie, that you are love, you are defined by love, that your power knows no ends. It hung the stars where they are, it numbered them and named them and scattered them to the winds. Your power is the one that told the oceans where to stop, that your power raises the dead. And so it's that power matched with that love that helps us to claim the promises that you have made to us and know that you can't be untrue to them and that you can't fail to complete them because there is nothing, no power in heaven or on earth that can thwart your desire to bring your people to yourself. That is how we get out of bed in the morning. Change us by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.